Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hello and welcome to your book. I'm Daisy Buchanan, your host, book inspector and literary dirtbag. I'm currently reading and adoring a proof of Paige Toon's brilliant new book, You Could Go Anywhere, which is coming in May. I was enjoying it so much that I didn't want to stop while I ate lunch, and now I have a bookmark made of mayonnaise. My brand new book, The Sisterhood, A Love Letter to the Women Who Shaped Me, is published by Headline, and it's available online and from bookshops all across the UK. Now to this week's guest the poet, essayist and broadcaster Sinead Gleeson. Sinead is a writer's reader and a reader's writer. I've lost count of the number of times she's come up in conversation with other authors who are fans of her work and feel indebted to her as she is such a generous champion of theirs. She's edited and contributed to a great volume of anthologies. She was a vital voice in the Repeal the Eighth campaign and she's the author of the brilliant new book Constellations, an essay collection and the story of a life in a body as it goes through sickness, health and motherhood. Constellations is dazzlingly, shatteringly insightful. Sinead breaks our assumptions about womanhood and rebuilds them into something beautiful, vivid and true. This is one of the most personal books I have ever read and one of the most universal. We can all learn from her words and become better humans from them. And her writing is so gorgeous that you can't tear your eyes from the page. It will stay with me forever. I read it proof, fell in love and begged Sinead's publicist to let us get her on the podcast. We ended up at her house in Dublin, drinking wine and hanging out with one of the most adorable puppies in publishing. Because I turn my, uh, my, I'm just, I'll make us some more tea when your voice, your voice starts going to say you want more tea or something. Thank you so much. Um, yes, um, do you want another cup before we start? I, I think I'm all Are right. Sure? Do you need anything yeah. No, no, I'm good. Yeah, I'm good. Um, so we're here in... In Sinead's house in Dublin, it's beautiful. We're here with uh, Jake the dog. Hello. Jake is going for a little wonder. Um, I think he wants to see what we're going to do. So um, <laughs> you were uh, just showing me uh, Niven Govindan's new book, which is... Ah, there it is. I found it. Then. Put it on the sofa. This Brutal House. It's yeah. published by it's Dialogue. It's Dialogue, which is uh, and one of the people, it's an imprint of Little Brown, I think, and there's a wonderful woman called Charmaine Lovegrove who's doing wonderful things and trying to find... Oh, I um, love her on Twitter. Yeah, she's, she's fabulous. Trying to find BAME writers and writers of colour and sort of, I suppose, lifting up uh, voices that we don't necessarily get to see or hear. And we all know that publishing can be very 
white and homogenous and so I think this is a really good thing but uh, I interviewed Niven I got to know his work we had we had him on the book show a few years ago and I think it was uh, which book was it wasn't the you mentioned one actually the Weird and yeah, New Romantics I think I read it was his... Black Bread White Beer yes, I think we talked about it the, all the, the Friday Project yeah. book I think yeah so I think he's really talented so this is like it's about the kind of the, the Vogue ball kind of drag groups in New York in the 70s I think it's saying it's absolutely fabulous and wonderful so I'm going to dive into that and it says like I mean echoes of James Baldwin Marilyn Robinson and Rachel Kushner I mean you could not read that I know um, it sounds magnificent yeah so that's out I think that's out in is it June I think it's June yeah but um this is the as we were saying the problem with like so many proofs there's so all the things you want to read all the things you maybe have to read for work reasons in your case in my case um and I just wish sometimes I had a robot version of me that I could just feed books into it and let it do oh, wouldn't that me, be so. heaven if you could just yeah. download them directly instantly, into your brain? Yeah, instantly. But it, which, of course, goes against all the kind of ideas of why we love reading and the things we like about it, whether that's, you know, on a plane or in the bath or, or in stages or, or savouring another chapter before you, a book is finished because you don't want it to end. But um, yeah, it would be handy, though. It would be yeah. nice. If all um, the work reading was done that way and your pleasure reading mm. was just for yourself, it'd be great. What sort of reader were you when you were young? Were you a child who loved books or did you, was there a particular book that was a real gateway for you? Yeah, I was a massive, massive reader and like everybody else started with the usual stuff. So it was all the kind of um, Ina Blyton and Five Find Outers and Secret Seven, all that stuff. And then I suppose because that stuff was mystery stuff, it, it isn't really uh, a shocker uh, that I moved on to very quickly to Agatha Christie. Um, and I think that actually there's some over here. Oh, the, uh, yeah. yeah. I have piles of these, but this is only a couple. So, the, like, especially the old ones. I love them. They're these old kind of... These I think editions they're pe- beautiful. I think so they're... Oh, got... Fantana. That's a Fantana. That's an old penguin. So, The Murder of Roger Ackroyd. That's the real kind of penguin books. Green. This is this... it. This is... And this is... So, this is Panth... The Murder on the Links? The Murder on the Links. So, it's a <gasps> golf murder. So, you can see the kind of plus fours. Is that fours the 70s? The, uh... But it looks very yeah, 70s. very 70s. And then, why didn't they ask Evans? That's got another golf ball. Yeah. Golf. And I get the Christie now that I look at it. Um, but they it's were the always... PG Woodhouse of murders. But you know what? I just opened this actually and this shop uh, Como's used to be in on Cork Street which is in Dublin 8 and it was a really tiny kind of windowless dark shop that this kind of man who always had like a fag hanging out the corner of his, his mouth <laughs> and you just walk in and there were just floor to ceiling piles and I used to go down there and I think I even went down, walked down there on crutches once and um he got to know that it was me and he'd be like, they're over there and he would know. So uh, before I was like Nancy Drew and Hardy Boys and then I progressed to these. So I bought a lot of books in that shop. Um, and I, again, I think I've, I, some of the stuff, there's an essay in Constellations about spending a, a lot of time in hospital in my teens. So at that point, I think by the time I was 12, 13, I'd read all the Agatha Christie and then it was like Ellery Queen and Nia Marsh and you'd read all the Agatha Christie yeah, bloody yeah, hell yeah but this is the thing when you're in hospital and you're immobile and you've got nothing else to do and also I'd be clicking away on my phone probably now um, but there's nothing else to do so when you're if you're if you're ill or kind of not able to move around that much or you're bed bound reading is it just it's total gateway it t- takes you gets rid of the boredom it passes the time but also like lets you roam around in a way that you physically can't when you're you know on traction or whatever it was so I read so much when I was younger um, and I think it was a lot of it was kind of crime stuff and then when I got kind of into my teens I started to think about um, you know maybe 
I suppose literary stuff and started to like the you know those wonderful penguins. I wonder if I, these kind of ones. Do you remember these ones? These kind of these minty oh, yeah. kind of ones. So I started to read this sort of stuff like Jean Reese and Colette, not understanding all of it, but kind of going, "Ooh, these look interesting and fabulous." And as we were t- or talking about earlier, short. Look how <laughs> look how short that is. If only all books were like how many pages is that? One hundred and thirty-five pages. That's kind of quite a nice. I think that sort, sort of, of length in your teens. I think that's a perfect, perfect time to start reading Jean Rhys because that yeah. there's a real a bleakness to her that I think can be quite terrifying. You know, when you're adult enough to realise how bleak the world really is yeah. and you've got sort of a teen idea of it, almost like a... In the way that I think, you know, why teenagers love the Smiths, I think, yeah. is why yeah. <laughs> you'd be drawn to that yeah. world. I think it, it, the other thing about reading at that age is that you are, you're like an omnivore. So you don't, you haven't learned what your tastes are. You you don't believe in ditching books. You literally read everything and anything. Um, I used to, my dad always had, I mean, growing up, my, my mum read all the kind of Catherine st- cooks and stuff. And there wouldn't have been a kind of literary, a lot of literary books in my house. And my dad doesn't read that much, but he, d- he was really into kind of ghost stories and spooky stories so he had these kind of Alfred Hitchcock used to do these collections like Bar the Doors and Ghostly Gallery and they had like really trippy kind of covers and I loved them but he had the there was another there's a set of these books I don't know if you've ever seen these there was like Irish Tales oh. of Terror Scottish Tales of Terror so that like, yeah, cover so, it's just a frog it's, just, it's, it's a frog. the most frightening books I've ever seen and a frog emerging from the mist it, with... is this like I wondered is this like some sort of guitar pegs but then I kind of thought if it's Irish is that a oh, harp is, it, is that a frog okay. on a harp I don't know. It looks like it could almost be um, a bed, like a, a board at the bottom of the bed and the frog. I, don't, I thought it was something musical, but also I don't know what he's doing with this. I don't know why a frog is meant to mean this is a terrifying book, but they were just kind of ghost stories. I'm scared. Um, and they'd have like, you know, some of the people in them were sort of, so Sheridan Le Fanu, obviously, who's quite famous ghost story writer. Um, uh, Melmoth Latron, obviously, ah, Sarah Perry's connection to that. Who's an Irish writer? Um, also, horrifyingly, you'll look at this and go, "Are there any women in this book?" No, no, there are no women in this book, which is a frequent thing that happens with the Irish anthologies uh, of yore. Um, but I love this kind of stuff. So a lot of ghost stories and spooky stuff and gothic stuff. Um, so again, it was obviously not a hop, skip, and a jump to like Wuthering Heights and. Um, those kind of things where you know books that again that are, especially in terms of setting and place just take you away and as you mentioned like Jean Reese, you're reading like these and Colette even you're reading these very kind of like avant-garde sort of strange mystical promiscuous sort of lives and if you're reading that as a teenage girl in Catholic Ireland in the you know the 80s and 90s it feels very very far away from where you are and that's what books are meant to do mm. they're meant to bring you uh, to an, an opposite kind of experience or a different kind of life to the one that, that you have. That must have been truly mind expanding. Yeah, yeah, especially, I mean, everyone kind of, you know, I, I think, I, oh God, I've forgotten Judy Bloom. I mean, the Judy Bloom books were huge for me as well. And I think, you know, everybody read forever. And that was often for a lot of people the first time that you read about sex mm. in a book or, you was know. Was there any kind of censorship of that? Were they quite hard to get hold of? Judy Bloom, no, not by that point. But there still were. I mean, we talk about like Edna O'Brien, obviously, with the Country Girls trilogy from the 60s, which is a wonderful collection. And it's the one city, one book choice for Dublin this year. Um, and those books, when you read them now, I mean, they're quite tame, but they were considered like, I mean, the book was burned in the, the local church grounds in, in, in Limerick where, um, where, Edna, where Edna was from. And I think it was not even that it was that sexual or that explicit, but it showed women kind of making choices, mm. wanting to be with men, not wanting crucially to get married, wanting to have another life that wasn't just being a mother by the time you're 19 and having three babies. Uh, and I think that's what annoyed the church in a lot of mm. ways, because it's not that terribly explicit in lots of ways but yeah I think 
I mean, there's a wonderful writer who's in the, the long days back, uh, Nora Holt. There's a couple of her books here who only died in the 1980s and I think is a really, really transgressive Irish writer. And, uh, yeah, it's all right for this one, because this looks beautiful. Yeah, Cocktail Bar. So that's a, I, there's a story from that in The Long Days Back. And there's a, I, they actually, being in The Long Days Back, a lot of people started to ask about her and talk about her. And she's so, so forgotten. She was more banned than Edna O'Brien and John McGahan, who were both banned quite a bit. Um, and I included a story in that book and then a publisher, the publisher who'd published this collection said, why don't we reissue this book, Cocktail Bar? So I wrote the introduction and then oh, it, 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 I was, it's I was looking somewhere. in this original yeah. edition of Cocktail Bar. So yeah. Probably not in that one. There's one, it's somewhere around here, I'll find it in a bit. But it is also about how easily women get forgotten. And there's a story that's um, not in this collection called Nine Years is a Long Time. It was written in the 1940s in Ireland and it's about a couple who were married and you find out as you read the story that basically the woman takes gentleman callers for money with the husband's approval. And it's to write a story like that in the 40s in Ireland is just no wonder she was getting in trouble all the time and was being watched. But also, I think some people have a theory that some of her work was quite romantic and the same thing that can happen to Daphne du Maurier if you write romantic stuff and it happens to be literary, mm. you get dismissed just for being romantic and people forget all the really brilliant writing that you did. Oh, I'm going to put Cocktail Bar back because... There's something, actually, there's some Demar- there's lots of bits of du Maurier. There's one, Excuse me. my obsession with uh, Virago. Oh, these, you probably, love you know, these lovely these ones. Virago editions. The hardbacks. So that's the short stories. There are the, the Don't Look Now short stories. Um, there's, oh yeah, The House in the Strand. There's another version of The Birds. Oh, there's an, how many editions of The Birds do I have? My God, look at that. <gasps> another really chilling. And also Pam, who published this, some of the loads of those old Agatha Christie. So also these kind of trippy oh, 70s. Very 70s Pam yeah. books, just gorgeous. Yeah. So it's just a bird with a beak and a broken glassy window looking kind of evil. Um, but I love it. But I love as well about that bird is it's obviously just bird detail, but it looks like it might be wearing a sort of one of those like flying hats. I, I think it actually look it looks more like a penguin than a bird that can actually fly, does it not? Yeah, it does. But the mouth is open and Do you it's think all... the brief is a bit broad? I think it was. Angry bird hammering on a window. <laughs> Go for it. Knock yourself out. I, th- the I think there's a bit of that. Bird. Yeah, I think there's a bit of that. Um, oh, and I've seen a book that I love that I don't see um Often, uh, Jane Bowles, uh, Two Serious Ladies, because that's quite a, in terms of what is happening and all of the intrigue and the sexual politics, that's... um, It's a phenomenal book. I think ahead of its time, well, not ahead of its time, but it's about subjects that weren't readily discussed. No, not not at all. And then these two really interesting women, and the title is also a real oxymoron that, you know, they're they're not serious at all in a lot of ways. And their regard and their connection with each other, I think, is really striking. Uh, and again, it's there's a sort of a, a thing about that book that you when you meet people who like it, they love it with all their heart. And you don't often meet people who like it. Um, there's a, a friend of mine who's a, a Canadian writer, Patrick DeWitt. It's one of his all time favourite books. And he's like, I wish I'd read this a long time ago. And he absolutely adores it. So I love talking to people who've read it. And again, I, I actually there's some stuff on these shelves here that are I are I really want to read this reread this year. And I'm not a massive rereader because I always think, what's what is it? Some book I'm not reading that I is amazing and going to change my life. And I wasted my time reading something again. But I'm coming around to the idea of rereading more because I think you you miss things if I were to come now and grant you the magic present of a week off from all responsibilities all writing and work and childcare everything's sorted but it's like you can read any book you like but it has to be a book that you've read before 
What would that be? Oh, that's really hard. Um, oh, well, do you know what I think it might be? Because I, I, I do love this book and I want to reread it for loads of reasons because I think I'm probably going to teach it to students. Uh, this is a writer who I think is phenomenal and has a new book out this year, um, Evie Wilde. Um, her first book has an amazing title. It's called After the Fire, A Still Small Voice. But this is a book uh, called All the Words Singing. And it's about uh, a woman, starts off a woman on the Isle of Wight and her, one of her sheep has been killed. She lives on her own. It's very mysterious and atmospheric. And you're like, is something watching her? Is something stalking her? And then it cuts back to another story, a dual story in Australia. So the, one story is told linear frontwards and the other story is told backwards. Um, and I can't, it's just, it's such a clever way of telling a story, but she's just a, a beautiful uh, I, I just can't think of anyone who writes like her and I love her work and there's a new novel I think coming out in the autumn and I keep telling people about her to, to read her and um, I you know yourself as well lots of stuff gets pushed your direction in terms of what you should read and who you should read and I always love hearing about people that are strange or unusual or that's my my dog's just looking for attention there I don't know what he's that Jack who's I think yeah. quite upset um, Jack I'll be asking you about your Jake. Jake. Jake, I'm so sorry, That's Jake. A, he, he, probably, he, has, he has about 15 names, as I was saying, so he's quite happy with all of them. He's he's kind of multi-name. He's okay with that. But um, Jake, I will be so, asking you about the book that you'd be read so shortly. I would probably read this. Um, also, a, a book I love that I, do, I actually have reread because I do love it. Uh, and again, you might know this because it's a feminist classic, which is The Awakening by Kate oh, Chopin. Oh, wow, yes. Um, and I, it's, people kind of read that in the same around the same time as they read The Yellow Wallpaper, which is the mm. Charlotte Perkins Gilman. Um, and this is just a, a book, you know, written in the, I think, 18... 1899 it was published so it was the decade of the new what? woman so lots of stuff was happening I with love women. that very and much looks like an edition you get if you were doing it as a set text yeah it's one of those it's you know these Dover thrift things like they're often like 99p or whatever but again crucially very short and, and small but it is about a woman who makes really unconventional choices when it's she's expected to be married and have children and just you know shut up and just be a lady and don't do things that are transgressive but of course she ignores all that and does all the transgressive things and I totally love it so I'd love to reread that again because um, again I've seen stuff in it that you don't spot. And again, what we were saying, when you read things when you're a teenager, you don't understand everything. And I think it's, you know, reading a book like that, particularly now uh, at a time where there's a lot of talk around, you know, motherhood and not having children or having mm. children or Me Too and rape culture and all the sort of things, horrifying, the long list of horrifying things that happen to women in the world. To read a book like that, I think, is to see how it stands up after over 100 I, years. Definitely, because I have mm. not um, read it in many, many years. Yeah. And I was a bit kind of, you know, utterly transported by it but also but we've sold all this now like reading it for the story rather than necessarily the resonance of the story and I think it's there'd be so much there to yeah what do you think without giving it away what do you think of the ending can you remember the ending if I say Um, it's something to do with swimming does that jog any memories because the ending I think really divides uh, a lot of people about what is go what's going on or what she decides to do with her life if my Memory serves me, not to do any spoilers. I remember feeling quite cross-abashed at the time, but yeah. perhaps it making more sense to me now yeah. as a very human yeah. choice. Yeah, absolutely. I th- yeah, I think I was like, oh, no, I didn't like that at all. And then I think as I've thought about it as the years go on, I'm much more accepting of it. But then it's not good when a character makes you annoyed because then you're like, oh, I'm so annoyed because I feel really real to you. Yeah, it's yeah. a very authentic thing yeah. to yeah. do. Yeah. Are there 
Elmi, um, um, I feel bad about asking this question, but I was thinking about, you know, problematic, romantic heroes and all of those narratives and what we're sort of sold as being the ideal relationship and thinking, well, this is just terrible. Are there any male characters who are presented as romantic heroes that you have problematic crushes on? Oh, problematic crushes. Jane Bowles lives yeah. here. Yes, yes, she does. Um, oh, let me think. Oh. Because I don't know, so yeah, I don't think yeah. I ever really fancied Heathcliff. No, at all. I, d- I didn't, and I see this. This is a thing that kind of pops up a meme type thing on Twitter, and I kind of go, yeah, I don't think I've ever really fallen in. I mean, I've rooted for characters, but I don't think I've fallen in love with one necessarily. Well, you know, it's funny actually now that because we've been talking about Demarie, there's something really, and it's maybe it's something to do with Laurence Olivier, uh, Rebecca. Mm. What's his name? Uh, Maxine. That's it. Is it there? Yeah, no, it's not. It's, it's not <laughs> That's it's, cheating, producer no, Dale. No, it's somewhere. It's, I think it might be upstairs. There's some Rebecca's here, and I think or there's some Demarie here. But it, yeah, I mean, it's because he's sort of, and yet he's got that gaslighty vibe about him, mm. which is really problematic, obviously. But uh, but no, t- I tend to sort of tend to root for characters and wonder how they're going to I like to see it as we all kind of tend to do you want to see how a character is going to respond to a certain problem mm. in the hope that maybe if you ever presented with that situation you'll you'll steal their ideas and their their roots out of things and see what they do with it but um it's yeah, a lot like I think isn't it shouting at a telly quiz show not really appreciating yeah. how yeah. pressured that yeah, situation yeah, is yeah. Completely, completely who would you write a new ending for or write a sequel for if you if it's someone you reached for and you really wanted them to have a happy ending do you know what's funny? I think this is also a book I think a lot of people love. Uh, Tony Morrison's Beloved. Mm. Uh, and it's such... This book absolutely blew my mind yeah. the first time I read gorgeous, it. Gorgeous, gorgeous yeah. edition. I just noticed it's Piccadilly. It's Piccadilly. Well. Um, that it's such an angry book. And as you obviously you find a ter- terrible thing happens. There's a ghost. Mm. There's a ghost of, a, of a, a baby. There's terrible things happen in this book. And I can remember feeling that I could smell the spaces that they talk about and I could literally the tang of blood and metal would be in the the air Mm. so I kind of feel but everybody in this book is deeply unhappy and I suppose I a a next chapter if it if there if the next chapter is not as horrifying as the first Mm -hmm. one but the idea that like that slavery is such a an awful thing that so many things still have to be worked out and figured out about um and it happened and worse things in slavery happened even even more so to Mm -hmm. women in lots of cases which is kind of one of the building blocks of the story so maybe it's sort of a different story where what happens to the baby doesn't happen to the baby and there's a different kind yeah. of life. I, I wondered if, I mean, I don't think Toni Morrison would ever go back at this stage, but mm. I love this book so much and I think you could have written a book based on all the characters in it if you gave them all their own yeah. story because, again, she's so brilliant at characterization and bringing people to life. And this book kind of chilled me. I loaned it to somebody not that long ago, actually, who hadn't read it and just said they found it really... Um, like like more of a ghost story they found it to be actually quite frightening as opposed to just terrorising or traumatic they said I was actually kind of a bit freaked out reading the book definitely it's a book I've read a long 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 time ago and I think that everything that's happened in the US you know with Black Lives Matter uh, and police brutality and all and again we're seeing it represented in TV shows and films and books and in music and rightly so and I just think that we didn't know the half of it uh, such a long time ago it, whether that's through ignorance or that you know lack of internet lack of news you, or you wouldn't hear other cases being reported but I just think I and this is a really important thing for people to, to look at their own bookshelves as well and kind of make sure that your bookshelves look that there are people of colour mm. that there are queer people that there are um, people of different abilities that there aren't too many I mean it's, 
you know, I remember some, a guy tweeting me about his bookshelves. This was a while ago. And I no, again, I, I did scan. I didn't see one woman on the shelves. And again, it alarms me if people are only reading one kind of thing or you're not reading outside of your own experience or your own culture. Your reading is going to be a lot duller and your world a lot smaller if you're not kind of checking that. So it's really... I mean, there's loads of, there's a wonderful book around here that, again, there's a famous list. David Bowie has a list of 100 books that he loved and there's a book on it. Um, it's a, well, it's probably around here. Oh, there he is actually. That, there is actually Cocktail Bar, that one. Uh, oh, called, your introduction. Um, introduction by Sinead Gleeson. Uh, it's called Passing by Nella Larson, which is about where light-skinned women of colour uh, and the idea of whether you want to try and pass as white. And it's a really political, small, dark book. Uh, there's another book in the same edition I have called Quicksand. And again, it's, it's books like this. I think of like, uh, oh, here it is here. And it's actually beside one of my all-time favourite writers, which is Zora Neale Hurston. Um, if people ask me about, I mean, never I'm asked, do you have a favourite line from a book? Uh, favourite first line? Um I always pick Zora Neale Hurston's Their Eyes Are Watching God. It has one of the best, best opening paragraphs with best opening lines ever, ever, ever. Um, this introduction, I think, is actually by, if I'm not mistaken, I think it's by Zadie Smith, who is, uh, yeah, it's wonderful. She's she's written brilliantly about her. Uh, yeah, it's in Feel Free, I think, right? It is in Feel Free, yeah, which is one of my favourite collections of I essays. She's just that. a book so essay much. goddess. I adore her. Um, um, if you want to read the whole paragraph, we would love that. Are you sure? Okay. Ships at a distance have every man's wish on board. For some they come in with the tide, for others they sail forever on the horizon, never out of sight, never landing until the watcher turns his eyes away in resignation, his dreams mocked to death by time. That is the life of men. Now women forget all those things they don't want to remember and remember everything they don't want to forget. The dream is the truth. Then they act and do things accordingly. It's a really, it's a wonderful book as well because of it's written in a very specific kind of vernacular as well, which takes you a while to get into, but it has a gorgeous kind of musicality and rhythm to it. But yeah, that book absolutely blew my mind the first time I, I read it. Um, and I'd love to, yeah. And then, and then she had a really sad life as well. I mean, died kind of pauperish and penniless. And How would you sort of go about that if there was someone who perhaps hadn't read for a while and was really struggling to get back into it and if you want to say look this is going to feel a bit hard and a bit uncomfortable at first and it's a lot to get used to but stick with it like a a book for someone who hasn't been reading Mm. Um, or someone who's maybe been reading a very within a particular area and something where you know you want to say look this is you should read this and at first it will feel quite difficult but then the payoffs are Uh, great well, not necessarily difficult. And again, I, I know I have a couple of di- editions of this if I can find it. Yeah, I'd have, there's one over there as well, which is one of my all-time favourite, favourite writers, which is Laurie Moore, who's better known as a short story writer. But this is an incredible book about two teenage girls and their friendship. And one of the women in it is looking back on her life and deals with, you know, youth and promiscuity and one person has an abortion. But it's also Laurie Moore is really, really comic kind of writer. Um but what she's doing with, with words on the page, it's, it's quite a set. You don't realise after a while that she is being quite funny and is really dark. But she's talking about the most serious, uh, one of her best known short stories is set in oncology um, oh, pediatrics this, ward. This edition is um, Who Will Run the Frog Hospital? Yeah, and now all I can think of is that Agatha Christie frog looking quite distressed. <laughs> is that a frog on its way can to we, the frog hospital? Get, let's get the frog cover back out and compare. I don't know where I put that. But I, actually, I just noticed again because this book is a book that I love. I have another edition of it somewhere around oh, here. Very there, 90s. yeah. They're I bo- love oh, this multiple look. editions, and they're both Faber. And actually, actually I think yeah, they're both Faber. So I, I really like that cover. But I think, um, 
And it's interesting when you get to know a writer. Every a lot of people will mention Moore as a, as a short story writer, and she has a brilliant line about uh, the short story is an affair. The the the, the, uh, the short story is a an affair and the novel is a marriage and people think of her as a short story writer but my favourite thing of hers is this novel and maybe it's because it's the first thing I read and I didn't realise it was all these collections of short stories that she had when people can't or are struggling to read or they don't know what to read I always suggest something small and quick and sort of quite uh, encyclopedic and this is a book from a couple of years ago that I really really liked um, called How Life by Robert C. Thaler and it's literally it's set in a kind of a, a logging community in America in the early 1900s. And it literally is a story of one man's life told in, you can see, about 150 pages. Like, how can you fit a whole life into 150 pages? And it's a very, what I think a publisher would call a small story. And yet you feel like you're in, living in this freezing cabin where he lives. And it's just a linear account of a man's life, but things happen because it's fiction. It's not a, a memoir. Um, and this is a kind of book I've lent to a lot of people who have not been reading because they feel it's doable and it's short and because it is quite, you know, it is one of those things you get pushed onto each page by what happens on the next. And I just totally loved it. Um, I mentioned Patrick DeWitt uh, as well. I've got two brothers and uh, one reads and the other one doesn't really. And my dad's not much of a reader, but I loaned all of them The Sisters Brothers by Patrick DeWitt, uh, which was shortlisted for the booker. And it's by two brothers who are cowboys and all of them, all of them read it and loved it. And it's like, I think if you get three people, especially two who are not real readers who love a book like that. So that's the book I kind of say to people, if you don't like this, I'll, I'll, I'll give you like 50 quid. Um, I'll give you some sort of um, monetary remuneration. So yeah, so I, I'd say Patrick DeWitt's The Sisters Brothers is a book you can literally give to any kind of reader and people will just love it. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive in June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive in June too is it's a quick dry. It dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. We'll be back 
to Sinead soon, but now it's time for my Steal of the Week. A book so good that just paying the cover price is a bit like buying a Picasso from a car boot sale for 20 pence and then being all smug on the Antiques Roadshow. This week's Steal is by Series 1 guest Nina Stibby, her brand new book, Reasons to be Cheerful. If you loved Man at the Helm and Paradise Lodge, of course you did. I have great news. Lizzie Vogel is back and she is exploring the world of semi-legal dentistry. This is such a tender book about being on the very brink of adulthood. Nina isn't just the funniest writer I know, but the most emotionally intelligent too. This made me laugh and laugh and laugh and then suddenly I was weeping. The shift is exquisitely handled. It's a story about everything that is wonderful and awful about being human. And Nina is such a sonorous, lyrically smart writer of jokes that she makes Coleridge sound like a broken boiler. That's Reasons to be Cheerful, out on the 28th of March, published by Viking. Now back to Sinead. This is a lot of uh, non-fiction memoir poetry. Uh, this is a load of poetry because they're all kind of really skinny. Um, and again, I think this, if, if people are struggling to read, sometimes I think they assume it has to be a novel or even a book of short stories, which is also a great recommendation for people um, who don't read much short story collection or even better, an anthology. Because if you don't like one story, you've only spent 10 pages with it, it doesn't feel like a waste and you just jump on to the next thing. And I do love them. I mean, I've edited a couple of them and I, I love the fact that they're, you don't know what you're going to find. It's a bit of a grab bag. So I tend to buy them. There's a few knocking around over here there's shelves over there with Irish stuff but um and then these kind of things like little sets like this I'm just that's my that's my oh, kryptonite I can't resist that kind of stuff these famous stories yeah the standalone ones so they've got what's this what's that um Edna Brian one that's an Edna Brian yeah from, pa- from Paradise and then Sally's one Mr. that was the one from Granta which is uh, Mr. Salary um Juna Barnes is another writer who was wonderful who wrote a book called Nightwood a kind of quite experimental sort of book um, and that's a handful of stories, but they're a lovely idea. And there's Beckett, Dante and the Lobster. Really, I mean, these and, uh, as well are so yeah. sort of, you know, books as decorative objects as well yeah, as books. Yeah, yeah. Do you know that Notting Hill Editions, who published these, uh, these are all essays and different people. So they've published, like, from Deborah Levy uh, up to, like, there's the one, this one is wonderful, John Day. He used to be a bike courier in London, and it's basically a kind of a psychogeography, ah. but he called it cyclogeography. So it's kind of they all about London, how you um, traverse a city on a bike and how it's a different speed to a car or walking. Or And then obviously there's Wolf and um, yeah, it's wonderful. This is, in terms of books as objects, this is lovely. It's a book about uh, the history of horror and it's oh. called Sleeping with the Lights On and there's a cutout of a bulb on the front, <laughs> which I adore. Um, Daryl's an academic here uh, in Trinity. Um, but yeah, and these ones, I love these ones. These are um, object lessons. They pick, w- you pick one subject and you write a book on it. So you may know Joanna Walsh. She used to run the Read Women account. She did hotels. Um, there's ones on shipping containers, dust, oh, uh, personal sock. stereo, sock. <laughs> what would your object be? I would have written one, I think. I would have, someone's already done it though. I was going to, I would have maybe done hair, but I have an essay in my oh. own book about hair. But uh I don't know. You'd have to, what would yours be? What would you think? It's a great idea. Ooh, like That's a good question. Well, it's a bit sort of niche, but I was thinking about, um, and also I'm just because I've seen there is a, a hotel one. Oh. But, uh, so I was thinking earlier about how I want to write about hotel gyms because they're almost always completely terrible and they've not got anything you need in there, but also you feel about a thousand times more sort of virtuous and insufferably smug because... Yeah. Going in a hotel, it's so much more effort somehow than just yeah. going to the gym 
in real life, yeah. even though you're just sort of walking into a basement. Yeah, when you could just like actually be asleep mm. or in the spa or having a or cocktail in the bar instead of being on in the gym. holiday or yeah. away. But do you know who's actually doing one of these? Do you know Alison Devers, who's opened the Second Shelf bookshop? Oh, yeah. Um, she's doing one on trains, I believe, oh. this year. Yeah, which is a good, another good one. Because um, again, you kind of don't know what people are going to say. It's often not the straightforward. Mm. It's not an account of the object. It's your no. relationship to the object. Um, but I think a lot of the stuff up here, a lot of there's a lot of non-fiction stuff. And again, my book is a book of essays. And I found that for a long time, I thought I was going to write a novel. Because you assume if you're a writer, it's going to be mm. a novel. And I didn't really know, you know, I'd read handfuls of essays over the years, but they hadn't really become a thing or certainly not you could write a book about. Um, and I started to find, you kind of start to find the writers who are sort of writing stuff that really interests and appeals to you so people like Maggie Nelson or Rebecca Solnit um and sometimes the, uh, I think yeah. as well it's there's an aspect of permission isn't there oh yeah. you're allowed to write a book yeah. about yeah. that absolutely and I think there's a book uh that was recommended to me a few years ago which was uh Leslie Jemison's The Empathy Exams which is a, again a collection of essays but it's about all sorts of things and the title essay Empathy Exams is she needs money so she's, she does medical acting where you literally go in and you're given a condition and you have to t- pretend to medical students that you have like a tumour or you know you need an, you've got appendicitis um, but she juxtaposes with she finds that she has a, a heart issue she has to get I think some sort of not quite a pacemaker but something put in her chest and then in the same chapter she has an abortion so she's talking about her body and she juxtaposes all these things about the medical world there's a brilliant essay in it called The Grand Unified Theory of Female Pain which is about, you know, all the women in literature, like so Miss Havisham burning in her dress and all this kind of stuff. And it was reading a book like that. It's about a lot of different things, but reading a book like that, I had been sort of writing things like that. And then I kind of went, nobody's going to want to read stuff like this. And then I found Leslie Jemison's book and thought, wow, you can actually do this. And people are doing it. And she's obviously, I'm nowhere near her league, but she's an incredible, brilliant writer. And I think in the way that's happened in the last few years, is there has been a lot of work around medical stuff and around the body and about female bodies and about autonomy um, from Roxanne Gay's Hunger is around here somewhere, which I also think is a wonderful book. Um, and I think that it is it is about permission and it's also about women finding their voices mm-hmm. and feeling that you can say things that's particularly in Ireland that maybe you wouldn't have said 10 or 12 or 15 years ago. Um, I really want to talk hmm. to you about constellations because yeah. I know it's yeah. um, it's bold because at the time yeah. of recording we're in January and I yeah. think technically I read it last year but I think yeah. it is going to be. It's one of the strongest, most powerful and most moving and compelling books of 2019, oh, wow. maybe I- ever. I've truly truly adored it so and it's funny that was that was only ever my working title I was because I was thinking about it they've kind of gone with the line about the metal in my body but I I thought it was a kind of a really good way of describing an essay collection because they are all Mm. distinct in themselves but they're all part of something larger Um, and kind of I think maybe not me might disagree with this Mm. but about sort of womanhood as well and it's a sort of a galaxy of all these women for sure very different but very much part of something universal yeah absolutely because I see like I said uh, there are writers who sort of shown me what you can do and a lot a lot of them are not necessarily just uh fiction writers or people who write essays so did you start writing it before you knew it was a book was there a period of time where it you realized what it was going to become 
I decided I kind of started to write uh, standalone stuff. You know, it's funny, actually, I keep forgetting this, but a good few years ago, I wrote a tiny, tiny piece about January 5th, which is the anniversary of when I got leukemia. And I, I used to have a blog and I put it up on that and a publisher got in touch with me and said, would you want to write more like this? And I said, I don't know. I, again, I had literally never thought about writing memoir or essays. Um, so they gave me a deadline and I wrote a few pieces and I really liked writing it. Um, and I think they wanted something else from me. I think they wanted something much more linear and all about the illness and I wasn't interested in writing some sort of sick lit type book um, because uh, it, I did I don't and I still don't see this book as a memoir because the book is about a lot of things to me Vivian Gornick who's a wonderful uh, essayist herself and writer says that you know the memoirs tells all and the essays selects and I wasn't interested in telling all um, and I also think that really good essays look outwards. So they look at art and they look at politics and they look at other writers and they look at things going on in the world as opposed to just constantly talking about their own experience. So I think the first one that I wrote, I, I, again, I was starting to, my husband will, if he was, he'd be laughing right behind me if he was standing closer to me. I talked about writing for a long time and then didn't do it. And a lot of it was fear and lack of confidence and because so much of my working life is meeting writers who are writing wonderful books you kind of think I'll never be able to do that it won't be as good so why would I even bother so I didn't do it for a long time but harboured these ambitions so a new literary journal had started in Ireland with, uh, with three women as editors called Banshee it's a wonderful journal uh, and they set up and were looking for submissions so I decided to write a piece so I wrote a piece about um, hair which is sort of about my own experience uh, various head shavings multiple colours uh chemotherapy but also about you know Le Tondu in the Second World War about PJ Harvey about Renaissance paintings um, about what how hair can make people can make an awful lot of assumptions about women based on the, mm. their hair so I submitted it to them and they came back and said they were going to publish it I generally was really shocked and I'd actually been in hospital I had a fall and thought I'd messed up my hip and I was just really emotional I think it was a lot of opiates as well um, and I just couldn't believe that they were going to publish it so after that I thought well okay it, it, sometimes all it takes and I say this to people all the time who are trying to write mm. if you just get one piece published or you get onto one shortlist it, it gives you such a massive injection of confidence where you think somebody actually thinks it's got some merit so that you take that and you try and bring it to the next thing and I think the next thing then was probably the Granta, first Granta essay about Lourdes and my hip surgery and patriarchal terrible male doctors who dismiss women um, so I had two or three and I, I there was a competition the Deborah Rogers competition where they were looking for works in progress uh, and I had only three essays and I decided to send it in to that um, and it was competition run by this agency, RCW, Rogers, Code and White. Uh, and I got, there was 890 people or something, I got to the last eight. And based on that, um, my wonderful agent took me on. And he, even then he was like, so what are you doing here? And I was like, I don't know. So I had three essays, loads more on the go, but didn't think that a publisher would be interested or that it could be a book. And if they were all very disparate things, how would it all fit together? And then if it is a collection, it, it, an essay collection is a miscellany, so you can put things in, but it's only afterwards publishers will try and find a connecting theme. But then you see yourself the way, the more of them I wrote, the more I see actually some of these are in conversation that I didn't expect to be. It's something that I just, every time I do this and look at a bookshelf, yeah. it, the, the physicality of the bookshelf yeah. versus the sort of ephemeral the idea that something can be sort of free floating in your head and all the while, because I, you know, whenever I write, I'm like, I'm really not sure this is something that anyone's going to be interested yeah. in. You can't think about the reader. I mean, I know people are like, oh, you have to think about the reader. I can't because, again, a lot of my book is 
people have been saying that it's raw and that it's it's personal and to me for it not if it if it wasn't it wouldn't be authentic and it would have been yeah. a waste of my time to kind of try and lie or disguise or hide behind things but if I had thought about it while I was writing some of that stuff about the the reader I would have absolutely backed off and I would have started to censor and I wouldn't have felt as confident I have actually it's funny I have another friend who's got also got hip problems and when she read that Blue Hills piece she said to me, oh, my God, it's so private and you're so public. Uh, and then I and I, when she said that, I had a moment of, oh, my God, what have I done? Um, and I just thought because I didn't think of it like that. And I thought, is it really? Am I saying something really strange and out there and transgressive? And I think it's so interesting people writing about because it's I guess our health is something that is not permanent and not to be taken for granted and yeah. something that. I cannot stop thinking about with constellations yeah. is the juxtaposition of you writing about things that happen to you, but also the really tragic, utterly consuming essay about your friend. I don't want to do a spoiler, but yeah. the and the awful, awful accident yeah. and the power of that sort of yeah. the reality of, of living in a body. And I guess it's almost like, you know, not like being a logger, but yeah. a life is sort of something that all you can do is is move forward and the alternative is a sudden yeah. awful stop yeah and I and the thing about that essay it just started out as it's called our mutual friend and it, it's because for a long time people asked myself my husband so how did you meet and it, I did have to stop telling the story because I used to find it upsetting but also the, the reason why it connects to the rest of the book is because so much of the book is about the fragility of the body the the temporal nature of the body how how, how easy it can be broken and you know Rob the friend I talk about in that essay was never ever sick he was there was never anything wrong with him he'd never been to hospital or a doctor and it just takes one thing to happen for your body for something awful to happen to your body and I think what I it's almost I think Picador wanted the the the, the Blue Hills essay to be first and I think in a way now I've realized that what it says in the first paragraph of that book which is the first page of the book is essentially a lot of what the book is about, which is that you don't ever think about your body unless, you know, you're fighting in a war mm. or you're in hospital or you're having sex or you whatever. It's like good things and bad things. You, you literally most of the time, day to day, never stop to think about it. And it is that, you know, that cliche about your health being your wealth, that if you're untroubled by bad health, you're, you don't know how lucky you are uh, to not have to deal with that. I think it's the most straightforward definition of privilege, isn't it? Yeah. You don't yeah. notice how good you have it until yeah. you don't have it. Yeah. Absolutely. And I think that's is, is something that I wanted to talk about in the book in relation to not just myself, but particularly in relation to, to women and what happens to women and what has happened traditionally to women in Ireland about that, you know, women's bodies here have been the source of like, you must have 12 or 15 kids. Um, you are not allowed to have an abortion. You're not allowed to go on the contraceptive pill, uh, all based around the dogma of the church and religion, but also, you know, women who are put into mother and baby homes and women who are put into laundries. And we've had a really appalling track record in the way we treat women and their bodies in Ireland. And if you think about it a lot, it's 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 super, super upsetting. And I did, there's an essay that's not in the book, but it's, it's published in a, a wonderful journal called Gorse, uh, where I, would, I was on a panel with Jamie Attenberg, the American writer, who's super funny and really cool. And I read a piece from this uh, from this essay and after she said to me I, I think you're a political writer and I said I, I don't think that I am and she said well if you're a woman writing about all the things that have happened to women in Ireland and you're writing about the female body in Ireland how is that not political and it actually kind of opened a door I, I was still struggling with the book at that point and it made me kind of think yeah maybe it is like that and maybe uh, the things that I'm saying will link up with other things that are broader and not just necessarily about me or because my life that's yeah. how you could sort yeah. of make the argument yeah. that you know based on years of history 
more or less any woman writing it's kind of you know it is it is political and this idea that we're sort of like heartwarming and domestic and content that's splitting yes. us up that's separating yeah. our stories into oh it's it's funny isn't it how yeah. all of these women keep writing about terrible things that happen yeah. to women let's not link those up let's yeah. talk about the individual journey rather than saying this is yeah. a part of a and I, and whole I think, and I've said even more broadly and not just about the essay but I've said this in relation to the short story anthologies I've edited which are all female two of them for reasons of the Irish canon being very heavily skewed towards men and women being left out of it so I decided rather than give out about that I would do something so I'd make books and sometimes you know I know there are people and I know there are Irish writers and Irish male writers who haven't read those books because they see it as a book full of 30 women even though lots of them write short stories and lots of stories are very good and some of them are by classic people like Elizabeth Bone or Maid Brennan but there's a, there is a massive assumption made all the time about what the subjects that women write about and that those subjects are twee or cosy um, and, and they're about you know, and I've said this many times on panels that if it's about relationships or sex or love or families or death, um, it's kind of it's domestic and it's lovely and they did a great job. But when men write about the subjects, it's kind of human condition mm. and it's much more philosophical and it's political and it's the global weight of the world stuff that men are actually taking on and women aren't. And it's like, but that's not simply not true. Um, we're all writing about those subjects. Um, but I sometimes think that. And it'll be interesting to see what the response to Constellations is in terms of men. And I've heard from a lot of men who've been reading it, which is wonderful because they're seeing that it isn't a book. It's by a woman, but it's not necessarily for women, even though there's a lot of stuff relating to femalehood, I guess, in the book. I guess in terms of it being a learning experience yeah. in a book of impact. Yeah. I'm not saying for a second, you know, I, I know all that. I found it, you know, yeah. enormously rewarding to read a book that's a real sort of, you know, a wealth of nourishment, <laughs> but... Like, I feel as though if you're a man who doesn't read many women yeah. and is, has a fairly easy, untroubled life, like you need to read this book. There's yeah. information okay. here that would be very useful it's good to, to you. It's funny. I find some people have been tweeting me about going, oh, I got your book or I'm going to read your book. And I have to stop myself and go, I hope you enjoy it. Because it's like, it's it's a little bit of a strap yourself in one. There's there's a lot of um, dark moments in this book. And there's, there's, uh, there's lots of... Uh, this is one yeah. of those things where I'm going to say, I love yeah. this. And you're like, that wasn't the book. That was something yeah. else. But yeah. do you write about repeal in the yes, book? Yes, I do. Because yeah. I remember that yeah. being heartbreaking, but ultimately really euphoric. Yeah. And this yeah. idea of all of those multitudes and the history being as a real sense of celebration, but yeah. also of everything that came before it. Yeah. And I think that is, I think I did enjoy it. Ultimately, it was sort of not... Yeah. I don't know if I'm allowed to want a happy ending, but it felt like a happy ending. Yeah, but, and it's funny, somebody else, two other people have said to me, and I think it's in relation to one of the motherhood, the motherhood essay, somebody said to me that I was that I was funny. And whenever people say that, it's it, it's just unusual when you write essays about mm. such serious stuff. In, in some of my fiction, there it's definitely different. Mm. But the repeal one was interesting because I wasn't going to, I wasn't going to write about that. But again, the book was coming to an end as I was out knocking on doors and helping as loads of hundreds of other men and women were trying to get it over the line. And I, it just, found it was on my mind and the two weeks before the referendum I mean, every woman I know was like crying not sleeping drinking a lot more wine than usual um, just trying to like wait for the day and find out that this would all be okay and it was really really stressful so and then I remember because I have a daughter and my daughter was asking me about it I'm thinking that hopefully this will not be the case for you and I, I write about my, my daughter in the book quite a bit that I wanted it to be so different but I wasn't going to be in there and then I kind of felt again I've just, I'm just I'm writing a whole book and lots of it is about the body not all of it how can I not write about that movement and what's mm. happened but it was almost like every time I got to do the edits things were changing and it was moving along and even now the laws come in but there's been a problematic case of a woman who's been re- refused an abortion who's ha- had a fatal fetal abnormality and the law is not perfect by any stretch but 
like I said, it, there's always been, there have been women around in Ireland who were doing this stuff in the 60s and 70s uh, and, and beyond and before that, uh, who were at a time when it was much harder to do it. I, it's almost easy for someone like me to do that, but there was a lot of women who come before me. In the same way with the writing as well and the anthologies, the women who got to be writers who were competing against men who didn't want to include them in their anthologies, didn't want to hold up their work, didn't want to talk about their work. Um, and as long as women stop never doing that, it's going, I'm not going to let that happen. I am going to speak up. I am going to do something. I, I'm going to be active, not passive about it. I, I think there's that makes me really hopeful, I guess. So, yeah, it had to be in there, I think. it was. I wasn't going to at the and start. Maybe in the way that, you yeah. know, it's true of, of writing, that mm. the more people do it, the more people coming up will say it can be done and it's important yeah. to do. Yeah, and I think, again, like I've taught, taught workshops with people and it can be like a whole variety of, of experience and what people want to do with their work. But it's, it is confidence and I see it much more with women. I mean, in lots of cases, like there's a wonderful Irish publisher, Tramp Press, run by two women called Lisa Cohn and Sarah Davis-Goff. And Sarah has her own novel coming out, a really good novel about zombies in Ireland uh, called Last Ones Left Alive. And they have a submission policy where... Um, if you send them a submission and you say you don't read any women, they won't read your manuscript. But they said that even the confidence of people who approach them in terms of I'm a writer or I want to write, I'm trying to write. It's it's always a lot more men who are much more confident mm. and often it's women who are less. But I yeah, she did. She um, just kind of, it was like, da-da, I've written a book and it's getting published. And I thought that was absolutely amazing. Absolutely. The paragraph you yeah. read, um, Nora Zeal Huston, yeah. um, that we know women, the dreaming is the doing. Yeah, yeah. And I think... I, like I said, didn't do it for years. And I realized that even times when you're not necessarily writing, you are thinking about it. And I, I, the next thing, I'm trying to write a novel at the moment and I haven't really been near it in the last few months because of kind of exhaustion and work and life and kids and everything else. And the more I didn't do it, whereas I'd been in a daily process with the book, the more I didn't do it, the more the days went by and the more they clocked up. And Mm -hmm. I was looking in the rearview mirror going, God, that habit of writing I had every day is kind of gone. And part of me went, whew, Maybe you don't have to do it again. Grant. <laughs> and then another party went, no, you have to go back. But I got really afraid of going back and I got really nervous about it. And I went away very recently for four days uh, to, to just to a retreat to see if I could climb back into it. I have I had bits and pieces of it done, all very in scraps, haven't a clue really what it is. But I did and I got back into the habit and it was kind of a relief because I, I really felt before Christmas, I don't know how I'm going to do this. I don't know what I... And I don't have a deadline or a pressure, which is, which is great because mm. I think that would finish me off altogether. But... I got back into doing it in a way that, but I, and I realised that even though I wasn't writing, I figured out loads of things by just thinking about it occasionally, going, I've got to get back to the writing. But I did figure out things by not even not doing it. I interviewed uh, Jeffrey Eugenides a couple of years ago and he, I said to him, are you working on a, a new book? And he's like, yeah, yeah, I am. And I said, How, how's that going? How far are you in? And, uh, and he's like, do you mean like the word count? And I said, yeah, are you far along? And he's like, oh no, I haven't written a word. And I said, what do you mean? And he said, oh, no, I think about a book for a whole year in my head. I don't write a single word. And then I sit down and write it. And I was like, not even notes, notebook. He was like, nope. That terrifying. is terrifying, yeah. but quite comforting. Because I yeah. do fall into that trap of feeling, okay. oh, I've got a weird Protestant work ethic for a Catholic, maybe. <laughs> but like, I just, I need to have something yeah. to show. And actually. Yeah. What if you didn't remember it, though? Or, and, and also, I do think, I don't know about you, but. Think sometimes you, you start off your day going right I'm going to write this and then you start writing and your brain drags you off in a different way and you're like no no we're going over here and you're coming with me and there's nothing you can do about that so I wouldn't be able to do that no that's I think that I'd be end, end up going mad do you ever enjoy writing do you ever have moments where you're like yeah, yeah this is nice yeah they're very rare though I think um, so mostly it feels like slog and, and work um, when you think you're nearly finished something it's good when you can't 
when you, when you fi- can't figure out the problem or something, uh, I find it really um, absolutely, it's soul destroying. You're just like, I don't know how to make this better. And there was an essay that was nearly in the book that wasn't that I will go back to that. I would, that was nearly there. And I, I didn't think it was, I needed my, my editor, and I, but I will go back to that. But I tried a couple of different things with it. Um, and it just, and I know it was also because I was racing against the clock and that was the biggest thing. And sometimes you just need to put things aside. Mm. And one or two things have happened since that essay because it's on a specific subject that have happened now that I'm glad I didn't write it then because it's, I've, there's two things I've discovered that I'm like, great, I can now put that in. Um, but yeah, so away recently in the novel, I had a really good day where I got loads and loads done. I figured out an awful lot of things and it's the most, I think it's the busiest writing day I ever had. Uh, then the next day I got practically nothing done. So that's, it is swings and roundabouts. You just, and you have to kind of write it out. But if you don't show up, which mm-hmm. I hadn't been doing, there, you know, there'll be no words. And if you even write a hundred words, a hundred words are better than no words. I do yeah. sometimes think with social media yeah. in the way that in my head, I know it's, it's not good for me. I never, ever, ever come off it. Like, oh, that was great. I really enjoyed yeah, that terrible. mad half hour. Yeah. Um, but sometimes on Instagram, you see, you'll follow, you know, hypothetically, I follow a thousand people yeah. and maybe, I don't know, 30 or 40 of them at any given time on holiday. But it just, in my head, they turn into one giant person who's, yeah always like on the beach having less time yeah not separate you know it's yeah. not something that someone's doing once a year and in that way I feel as though perhaps there's one enormous super successful person who's got like three books out a week yeah because when you're not writing yeah. and worrying about not writing and you see that I know and I know a couple of people have I saw this actually recently on Twitter a couple of people kind of saying and I was having a DM chat with this young uh, Irish writer who she doesn't live in Ireland uh, again, because of our crazy rental situation and it's so expensive here. And she was saying it can be really, really hard to look online and see everyone with their book deal news and their exciting news. And I'm, my extract is here and I've got an agent. And I, I absolutely, I'd say that's really terrifying. I mean, I've we've all been at that point at different points. Or if you're having a terrible day and somebody's like, I just bashed out 2,000 words and you feel like a total idiot because you can't manage 20. Um, but that's like all part of it. You just check your bank balance online <laughs> and someone's like, just sold my film, yeah, right? Just like, yeah, and there is, there, there'll always be that. And, and I mean, as we all know, per, persona is a big part of Twitter this some of the people who are really really funny that I know on Twitter who have met in real life are very very quiet I have made so many friendships and I'm about to get into a whatsapp book group with Catherine Angel and various other women about a book actually an Anne Boyer book that we Ah. want to talk about and this is the kind of stuff that happens do you know which one you're starting with we're going to start with I think Garments Against Women and then she has a new book out that we all are champing at the bit to get at but it's not out till later on but again I I, and I see it all, all the time online that I see women who are so keen to connect with other women, to amplify, to hold each other up, to look out for people when people are having bad days or have had terrible experiences or have talked about their Me Too experiences. And I find there's loads and loads of good in Twitter, um, which can offset all of the horror show of it most of the time. Uh, And a lot of the reason I'm there is because a lot of the people I've met and a lot of them happen to be women, uh, including you. Well, I think as well, you, you know, it's... The internet is only as good or bad as the people who yeah. use it. And I hope, yeah. you don't mind me saying, because it is a bit cheesy, that you are, you know, actively making it a much better place than it was when you found it, which is of great power and value in your in your writing. And that's actually something that I think the way women communicate with each yeah. other online, and it does feel like a dark and difficult time in some respects now. There's lots of shouting and being yeah. drowned out. That's secret but... WhatsApp groups <laughs> to give out about stuff. But all, maybe the writing, it's, it's books and it's poems and it's essays, but maybe it's also that. 
Yeah, and, has... and you, you know, it'll sound like it's the biggest cliche in the world to kind of, you know, that art can save your life and art gives meaning to, to our lives and our existence. But it is. But at a time when, when things are feeling really, really bad and people talk about, you know, self-care and going out for a walk and stuff. But I find it reading and dipping in, into something and even like picking a couple of poems if, if I don't have time to delve into or I can't find the right book or my head's melted and I can't think of the right thing to read. If you just read words offer huge amounts of solace. And they did for me all those years I've spent all that time in hospital and anytime I was sick I was always reading because it didn't ever feel that um, they were very I had a lot of very bad days and some of those days were just really helped because of books and because of words and because feeling that you can climb into something and lock yourself away from the actual horrible trauma of your life on that particular day but you can escape uh, with words and I've always found them that way and again I also Twitter has been a place I found I found Anne Boyer because of Twitter uh, Roxanne Gay because of Twitter you find oh, lots of people because some it just takes someone snapping mm. a picture of a book or mentioning something and then you keep, people get to know what you like and go oh, do you know what you'd like mm. and I do the same thing when, when with friends I go yeah I think you really like this so it's been wonderful there's so many good things about it uh, not least finding brilliant new people who write wonderful books you know, I've mentioned Roxanne, I've mentioned like Olivia Sudic's book, Sympathy, which I loved recently. Uh, this is another thing that I found I returned in the last few years as I started to write possibly as a way of not wanting to read fiction because I used mm. to read a lot of it as I started getting back into reading more poetry. And there's just been incredible amounts of I mean, that's, uh, is great work. as well because it is, it's nice and short. It's nice and short, but also I think if anyone, and I say this to people who want to write, whether they decide they never want to be a poet, if you want to be a writer, you need to be reading all the time, but you need to be mm. reading poetry. That's how you learn about words and sentence structure and rhythm. Uh, and all those kind of things and, and economy been, and economy less and again, economy there's I been think... so many one, like so many wonderful Irish uh, writers um, this is Elder Hooker She's uh, she lives in Tipperary um, Martina Evans we can talk openly about men which is a super stealable title um, oh. a good friend of mine Dirini Griefa who's a gorgeous edition has published well. just a, a book called Lies which is here somewhere which is wonderful um uh, and then there's people who like Anne-Marie Nakura and this is the most incredible collections about, again, t- takes on a lot of stuff about female bodies and mother and baby home. Um, and then you've got people who are doing this kind of stuff, which is like Anne Boyer, who's, I mean, it's kind of philosophical. It looks like prose. Some of it is kind of poetry. She's incredible. You should follow her on, on Twitter. She's got a new book coming out this year. Um, and I, again, reading people like this kind of shows this is somebody who's utterly fearless, who doesn't doesn't care. There is no doesn't want to be called a certain kind of writer is, is has no truck with form. It's like, don't put me in boxes. And I really like those kind of writers who blur those lines. And lots of people are doing that with them. Shall we, um, yeah. shall we finish on a poem? Is there anything yeah. you'd like to read? Oh, let me think. Um, oh, yes, absolutely. If I can find it, because it's one of it's used in the epigraph of uh, constellations. Yes, here. This is, um, I don't know if you've come across this writer, Liz Berry. This is called The Republic of Motherhood. Um, and I used a line of this as, as a, an epigraph in the front of uh, Constellations. Um, I totally love this. And it just, it also speaks to some of the, the things in Constellations. So it's called The Republic of Motherhood by Liz Berry. I crossed the border into the Republic of Motherhood and found it a queendom, a wild queendom. I handed over my clothes and took its uniform, its dressing gown and undergarments, a cardigan soft as a creature, smelling of birth and milk. And I lay down in motherhood's bed, the bed I had made but could not sleep in, for I was called at once to work in the factory of motherhood. The owl shift, the graveyard shift, feeding, cleaning, gloving, feeding. I walked home, heart sore, through pale streets, the coins of motherhood singing in my pockets. Then I soaked my spindled bones in the chill municipal baths of motherhood, watching strands of my hair float from my fingers. Each day I pushed my pram through freeze and blossom down the wide boulevards of motherhood where poplars bent their branches to stroke my brow. 
I stood with my sisters in the queues of motherhood, the weighing clinic, the supermarket, waiting for its bureaucracies to open their doors. As required, I stood beneath the flag of motherhood and opened my mouth, although I did not know the anthem. When darkness fell, I pushed my pram home again, by lamplight, wrote urgent letters of complaint to the Department of Motherhood, but received no response. I grew sick and was healed in the hospitals of motherhood, with their long closed isolation wards and narrow beds watched over by a fat moon. The doctors were slender and efficient. When I was well, they gave me my pram again so I could stare at the daffodils in the parks of motherhood, while winds pierced my breasts like silver arrows. In snowfall, I haunted motherhood cemeteries, the sweet fallen beneath my feet, Our Lady of the Birth Trauma, Our Lady of Psychosis. I wanted to speak to them, tell them I understood, but the words came out scrambled, so I knelt instead and prayed in the chapel of motherhood, prayed for that whole wild fucking queendom, its sorrow, its unbearable skinness, beauty, and all the souls that were in it. I prayed and prayed until my voice was a night cry, sunlight pixelating my face like a kaleidoscope. It's incredible. Huge thanks to Sinead. Constellations is out on April the 4th, published by Picador. It will get in your head like a song. It will stop you from ever taking your body or your life for granted. And it will make you kinder, more tender and more appreciative of everyone you love in your life. I'm Daisy Buchanan. Thank you so much for joining me for our paperback perving. You can find me on Twitter at NetRollerGirl and on Instagram at the Daisy Bee. Say hello, suggest some guests and watch out for shelfies. Visit our show page, acast.com slash booked, for more information about our guests and a list of the books they've talked about. If you have any other queries about the podcast, you can email us at whybooked at gmail.com. Your Booked is produced by Dale Shaw for New Alaska and hosted by Acast. Please do subscribe, rate us and leave a review. It's great to hear what you think and it helps other people find the podcast. I'll see you next time. For now, let's hope our future guests follow the instructions of Dr. Seuss. Fill your house with stacks of books in all the crannies and all the nooks. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 